welcome to this episode of the Horror Drafts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brantley Palmer, joined as always by my fellow co-host, Mr. Nicholas Schwartz. Nick, how are you today? Brantley, I'm doing amazing. How are you? I'm doing great, too. And I'm doing especially great because we have a wonderful guest here today. Our guest is an actress, writer, and director known for her web series, Blank My Life and Screamers. Her feature directorial debut is the horror comedy Stag, which has been playing at festivals around the country and recently premiered at the Salem Horror Fest, where I was lucky enough to catch it. It was It's the wonderfully talented Alexandra Spieth. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we are very excited. Thank you for coming on the podcast. This is exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm super stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, uh, So, like I mentioned in the intro, I got to see your uh, new film, Stag, at uh, the Salem Horror Fest, which was very exciting. Uh, mm -hmm. And um i was like well i gotta i, I want to reach out and see if she'd be willing to come on the pod because uh this was such a blast of a movie and uh, she seems like she'd you know hopefully do it and have a great time so oh, thankfully yeah. you said totally. yes mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah no, i was super excited when you asked me thank you yeah absolutely and uh you know, we uh, we always start real easy on this podcast. We just kind of touch base with our guest and see what you've been like watching, reading, listening to, or otherwise enjoying. So, uh, what have you been? What have you been liking lately? Okay, so I'm like reading. I'm reading tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, and I think it's great. It's like it's a book about sort of like two young people who come up with like a video game and sort of all about the ins and outs of like creation mm. and kind of like both uh, the ecstasy and agony of creating with somebody you love kind of mm. in like, I mean, it's like, I'm not through it yet. So I don't have the total picture of like how it ends, but it's really, really awesome. And it's really cool for somebody who's been a filmmaker to look at like a medium that's very similar obviously making games I would imagine is incredibly creative in the exact same way and just like a lot of it hits a lot of the same heartstrings mm. that you feel when you're a creator um and then I, I am very late to the party but I just finished White Lotus season two and nice. I am watching Succession as it releases so those are kind of like the things I'm watching right now Oh, that's great. That's a lot of, yeah. that's a lot of awesome stuff. White Lotus is fantastic. Uh, yeah. My wife and I are late to the party on Secession. We've only gotten through the first season, but it has quickly become like the go-to show when we have time in the evening. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, it's interesting because I never watched, we never had HBO Go. My sister got it, I guess, last year. And so mm. like now I'm able to be like, oh, it's coming out on Sunday. Whereas <laughs> like previously it had been like, oh, I'm going to go uh, to somebody's location that has it and like binge it all together so it's been like it's more interesting to be like oh man it is like a drip every <laughs> week rather yeah. than be like oh i got that hit <laughs> yeah yeah it's always but, tough yeah. when you transition to a show that comes out weekly when you're so used to this binging era yeah definitely exactly <laughs> yeah. oh that's wonderful thank you uh let's see nick what about you man anything you've been enjoying lately I got nothing for you, Brantley. Yeah. We've, we've been, been on this podcast surge <laughs> lately. So this is, it's very new for us, Alexandra, where we have been able to line up a number of guests in advance. And due to the nature of our show, because we normally don't just talk about when we, we like do a total topic. So we're usually cramming in 
like a bunch of movies to watch so yeah. you know we've we haven't had as much time lately to to uh check out a bunch of uh new stuff so i i get it nick no worries <laughs> all right yeah thanks man <laughs> um well with that uh topic covered i gotta talk to you about stag because this was uh, an absolute treat. It is a fun horror comedy. The laughs play like super well. Like when we went uh, uh, at the Salem Horror Fest where I saw it, like, I mean, the, the crowd was just like l- roaring laughter. Um, it it uh, really hits, I think. So we talked in this podcast before where like horror comedies are really difficult to pull off because usually they don't really hit the horror and they don't really hit the comedy. And it's kind of somewhere in between, but stag played so awesome and he really nailed the comedy and that came through perfect and then the horror elements were very like um, maybe visceral is not the the right word but it 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 felt very real and not as um disconnected that sometimes you feel in like um some slashers where it's following like a specific formula i guess is kind of where i'm coming from with it Um, hey thank you i appreciate that yeah Yeah, I mean, I definitely, like, I mean, to be honest, like, I would say that more of my focus when I had been creating had been more in the comedy realm. Like, Mm. the thing I'd come off of had been, like, an ensemble web series comedy, which was awesome. But, you know, I had always been interested in getting into horror, and I'd had this idea, right? And at that time, it was covid Mm-hmm. Um, I rewrote this feature from 2020 to 2021. So it was a lot of kind of in the house space. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know, it really gave me time to like think about and kind of like delve into the horror world. So that's really, really awesome to hear. Cause like, you know, now I'm like, you know, now I am like, I'm, I'm a horror person, yeah. you know, it's like, <laughs> the, you know, quickly you're, you know, you're there, right. Where you're mm-hmm. like, this is like, for me, one of the most freeing, cool, expansive genres, which allows for like really cool performance opportunities. Not that any genre doesn't, but because there's more of like, I mean, just because there's like more of a world of camp, more of a world of supernatural, more of a world of like, it's a little bit outside of the realistic, like, okay, we're living like a, an eighth grade experience we're living like a household in like the bronx experience like it just allows for more in my mind cool performance opportunities and that's something that i'm like super interested in so yeah thank you (laughs) yeah no absolutely and you know i know from like the q a you did after the screening that um you were able to go and like shoot at this like summer camp basically Mm -hmm. that really like opened its doors for the cast and crew and Mm -hmm. um really kind of gave you the 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 free reign basically to shoot all over the property which is fantastic because mm-hmm. like as i was watching it, i was like wow like this is like because i'd seen uh the estimated budget or something on imdb yeah. it was like 65k and i was like watching it like how <laughs> how did they do this for 65k because it looks so unbelievable. i would have thought this was like a couple hundred thousand dollar you know feature at least um considering everything that's in it i mean it's it's really great Thank you. I mean, I definitely like it is like that is the budget. And like, all I can say is that even though obviously not enough can be said about like COVID sucked, Mm -hmm. like it was at the time in New York, like 
you know, those actors were available, right? Mm. Like I wasn't competing with Broadway, right? Which just like a number of them do do shows in New York, sometimes with broad, you know, and it's just like, if that had been the case, they would not have been available, right? And the Mm. same thing was true with the summer camp where like the person who ran it, Jeff Blank, he's incredibly generous, but also he was like, you know, we've been hit hard by COVID. Like this is a good opportunity for us because we want to see if we can do filmmaking here and it feels like relatively low risk, Mm. which obviously was music to our ears because we were like, yeah, we think it's kind of low. You know, it's like, it's a not particularly, in my mind, hyper stunt oriented film, which is about like sort of six women in the woods. You know, mm-hmm. so in my mind, I understood why they were willing to take that risk. And I felt that it was appropriate, but it was still amazing. Like, yeah. it's just like, and so many people didn't make our day, that it's like to find the person who did, it's incredible. And that, I mean, the location is kind of the game changer for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's so, so, so cool. But yeah, I mean, in a weird way, I do sort of thank you, like I, I owe a bit of the experience to the fact that there was a lot of availability during COVID, honestly, even mm-hmm. though I don't want to go back there, but like <laughs> sure, sure. It, it helped us out in that way, kind of. Yeah. If there's a silver lining to be pulled out of, out of totally. that, it became really helpful yeah. for, your, for your movie. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like at the time, like the vaccines had rolled out in New York in uh, like January, February. So in a way we were kind of in that sweet spot where like most people were vaccinated, but at the same point, we were still really conscious about being like, okay, we have to have like a huge space scenes, which might have previously been written indoors. Like we'd prefer to have them outdoors. And that honestly, that all worked for the benefit of the movie, even though in some ways it was like logistical decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, you know, it's awesome that, you know, you were able to do it and you were able to kind of as as horrible as the pandemic was, it would at least allowed some opportunities here for creation. And uh, totally. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And um, so I know it's played at a bunch of festivals all around the country. Is it it's as I have any others lined up? Does it have anything like distribution or anything? Oh, I mean, we're still seeking distribution. I'm still mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm interested. I'm available and I'm really eager to speak mm-hmm. to anybody who's interested. Okay. That being said, we aren't, um, you know, we don't have anything necessarily lined up yet. We're playing in Chattanooga. We're waiting on a couple others. And like part of the, I mean, like just in transparency, like I had never done a festival circuit, even though mm. I have made a number, a number, a number <laughs> of shorts and web series. Like, it's just like, hey, this has been the first one that has gotten any sort of traction mm-hmm. across like festival circuits. And it was really important to me as a filmmaker to be like, hey, I want to experience that. Like, not to say that, like, I will always be pursuing a hard festival run. Mm-hmm. But for this one, I was like, hey, I just want to get to know the community also. Like, as I said, I was sort of like a horror baby. And like, having gone to these festivals, having met the communities, like having been a part of it, I mean, you learn so incredibly much about like what the tastes are, what the community is hungry for, Mm. like what the real, 
obviously you're competing quote unquote with like Netflix and like Hulu, but like you are not. You're mm-hmm. competing with other filmmakers who are making like incredible genre pieces on like a budget level. And like seeing, I mean, just like seeing so many of these films, you're like, oh my God, it just opens your eyes to also like the different, like the different sides of horror in a way that's for me easier to digest than being like, okay, this is like a five to $10 million movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas like just being like, oh, and this is how this filmmaker did it on sort of an equivalent budget. But like, you know, they're way more focused on like hands, body parts, like you know, and that's a super horror trope too, is like disembodied stuff. And mm. like, it, it was just like really, really awesome. And Salem was one of the best festivals I've gone to. It is like, oh. I would definitely go back there. I would say it and Portland Horror are like, to me, top two of like all the festivals I've gone to. So it was awesome. It was so, so cool. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Stag to me, it just seems like a perfect like, shutter screen box tube like someone like pick this up it's perfect for like a genre streamer like that because i think mm-hmm. it would be just play great it's something that'll pop up and be like oh i want to check that out because it would in it and i think it will be a real crowd pleaser um so i mean it was certainly a crowd pleaser when i watched it in the theater I'll say yeah that. completely yeah. yeah i mean it's like you know and there's you know i'm still optimistic i'm still looking out for opportunities but yeah i mean mm-hmm. i feel the same way and i think like I mean, I'm so, so proud of it. But like, you know, I think that also just like in watching it at Salem, you know, you feel something different every time you watch Mm -hmm. it and with every crowd you watch it with. But, you know, I mean, it it really does feel like it won't feel important to everyone, Mm -hmm. but it does feel as like, yeah, I'm like, I'm a female viewer. I made it, obviously. So I have a vested interest in it. But like, for me, I'm like, hey, you know, I don't know that the horror canon is supplying enough stuff like this yet mm-hmm. that feels like, to me, really, really female, really unresolved and really funny, which mm-hmm. is just like parts of everything I kind of want to make is yeah. like that kind of feeling, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, it it hits on all that. I, I think... It... I think it was great. I think it appeals to, uh, I think, I mean, it should appeal to everybody unless, you know, you're a loser. Yeah, totally. You want to see women in movies <laughs> yeah. or some shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I totally, I'm not saying that obviously, like, you know, men or anybody. Oh, no, no, no. Boy, I'm not, tr- I'm not putting words in your mouth or anything. I'm not yeah, saying that. Yeah. I just, you know, thankfully the horror community, I don't think has a ton of it, but there's always like losers who are just like oh blah 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 this is too feminist or it's too woke or whatever you totally. know and they can kick fucking sand and get out of here yeah, totally. fucking kicks ass. <laughs> well thanks yeah i feel the same way i'm like literally punched her kick sand punched her <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well that's great um yeah so anyway that that's your movie stag but you now are working on your second feature film uh i know exactly how you die that's uh, i guess in post-production is that still accurate post production we're still like you know we're still a minute till like Mm. it kind of uh like raises its head from post-production but it is incredible. Like, I mean, I really, like, I didn't write that one. That was written mm. by uh, Michael Corey, who's an incredible writer. Um, and like Stag, 
you know, you've seen it, but it's, I said this, but it's like, it's this piece that for me is completely about like toxic femininity, which is something which is just like totally been like kind of unaddressed Mm. in terms of like, I mean, you hear about toxic masculinity, like all the time. And like, for me, I'm like, Hey, but like, you know, toxic femininity is like it's something that at least I feel like is super real in my life Mm -hmm. where it's like you know it it and it exhibits in forms of gossip in forms of gaslighting in forms of like saying what is appropriate and what is not um gatekeeping right which also can be something but like I know exactly how you die something that looks like completely way more at like toxic masculinity and kind of like more in terms of like control issues, like needing to understand the narrative, Mm -hmm. like uh, needing to be able to control an outcome, Mm -hmm. like in sort of like big picture ways. And that was just like a total, that was like a total blessing to be able to like look at like, okay. And also just like in a weird way, Stag is sort of a movie that's all about like a bachelorette. So they're all on this kind of like agenda and it's all like an agenda, which they do together. Whereas Mm. I know exactly how you die. It sort of is the same game where it's like, you know, everything is set at a hotel. We filmed it this days in, in the Poconos, um, which was super cool, but it's far more transient where Mm. it's like people come and go like, you know, you, you know, people switch rooms, people are in different rooms, like you never know exactly where people are, even though you're in a confined space. Mm. So it's a lot more like, it's a lot more of like a maze. It's a lot more of like, kind of like, the imagery is more stalker-esque, rather than like sort of the unit being like preyed on. And it was just really cool to look at horror in those different ways where it's like sort of about like a group that's all together versus like a divergent group and Mm. versus a group, which is like, like the bachelorettes think they're coming to hunker down and have a party. Right. Whereas like everybody in, I know exactly how you die has desires to leave the motel, like, or has desires to not put down roots. Mm. And like, that's just a completely different, like, I mean, again, I'm like, I mean, the topic of our thing is like horror is a metaphor, but that's like the stuff that I'm really, really obsessed with is like, how does the movie manifest in terms of like, what are all the characters doing? What are they all trying to do? And it was just cool to be like, okay, that was a completely different opportunity. And just honestly, I know exactly how you die is a far more violent movie, Mm. which just like, like, I mean, again, like I wrote stag, like it was designed with that mind that was like, Hey, Uh, In my mind, we're sort of more looking at like the golden handcuffs. We're looking at like the diamond rings. We're looking at like sort of the beautiful aspects of marriage, which cover like dark undertones. Whereas this is all kind of about like, I mean, it's a hotel. Like it's a place of like transients. It's a place of prostitution. It's a place of um, spousal abuse. Like it's like, it is a far more gritty environment. And Mm. that was like, just so cool. Like, I mean, I, I, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. That's great. I mean, that sounds excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to see that. But once you finish it up, I can't wait. Hopefully it'll, you know, play at Salem Horror Festival. I'll get to go check it out. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, it's like, it's sick. It's, and also just like, 
you know, we had a couple more toys, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a couple more, you know, we had like some more, uh, like there was just more budget for equipment and mm. like, you know, I'm a huge fan of a dolly move. And like, we got to have like a lot of dolly moves. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, you know, it's not all about that. It's not all about filmmaking. It's not about the jargon, but like, I love that stuff. Yeah. So it was really satisfying to be like, okay, like, you know, we sort of have the tools now to where this is possible. We're just like, hey, in the other case, like we had a, you know, we did a ton and we did everything we could, but you know, it's just like the budget wasn't there for a dolly track or whatever, mm-hmm. which is fine. And it's fine. I don't think people are being like, boo, where's the dolly track? But you know. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I mean, I, I'm curious. I mean, it's, it's nice. You got these new toys, you got to do more things that you just didn't have the budget for, but I mean, you've directed a lot, obviously, but but from directing your first feature to moving to your second feature, what are some lessons you took from that first one that kind of helped inform the second? I mean, I just, like, the thing that I felt like, I mean, oh, God. I mean, doing Stag, I do think for me was a crash course mm-hmm. where it was like, hey, I was like watching a ton of horror movies to learn how to write it. I was watching a ton of horror movies before I directed it. Like, you know, a new crop to be like, okay, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to do. But just like the reality of like what we were playing with, a lot of the stuff was like, okay, the more like, you know, because what we need to do needs to be lit well, we have to go a little tighter. Mm. Which like, you know, it's not that those things are bad. It's just like, you, you know, you have to make some compromises. And then, um, like, you know, when I was editing it, I was still like, you know, by that point I'd gained like my sweet tooth. I'd gained my incredible interest in horror movies. So it's like, if there's something on, I'll flip it on, I'll flip it on, I'll flip it on. And like, in a, like I was teaching myself as I did it, but then when I was building the shot list for I Know Exactly How You Die, like, I was just like, it's crazy how much quicker this is going. Oh. Like, I was just like, I can go through this in, like, I can do 10 pages in an hour and a half, two hours. Mm-hmm. I can do, like, you know, whereas, like, for Stag, I was like, this is taking forever doing the shot list. And, like... You know, I got to set and of course all the shots that I thought of, like a ton of them, you know, they never even make it in the, they don't make it. Like there just isn't the time you're Mm -hmm. cutting on the fly. And I had way more of an awareness of that. Like, cause I know exactly how you die is still a micro budget horror movie. So like, you know, I was far more aware of like, okay, just like having done this before you it is. It does not behoove one to plan on nine shots mm-hmm. in general. Like it behooves one to plan on five shots, four shots, potentially three. Mm-hmm. Like and the better for. And also, I was just like, hey, me and the director of photography had worked together a number of times. The me and the stag photog- uh, director of photography. It was our first time working together. So like, I had more of an idea of being like, okay, I know that this director of photography likes to work in a way that is like you know, or I mean at least my read was like both of us want to get stuff that feels really really good mm. rather than having like okay we have kind of eight scene eight shots 
but we kind of fumble something here. We fumble something here. We fumble something here, you know? And so I was just like, Hey, for thinking about this, I know what I want. And I know that I think that this person will agree with that. We both love long tracking shots. We both love wide shots. We both love like, you, you I felt like we were both pretty aligned on our tastes in mm. a way that just like, it's hard to tell when you're going into a new relationship, like what that individual, because that's part of it too, of being a director is it's, even though like, quote, it's your vision, and it is, it is my vision, it is like the director's vision, but you're also looking to play to strengths. And like, but like, it's also like, I've worked with some directors of photography where they would far prefer to be like, hey, let's just get a ton of material and we'll splice it together in the edit. And I can mm. also work that way. Like, you know, that's also a way I'm totally down to work with, but you know, you're kind of trying to set it up to where it feels successful for the room, even yeah. though, and like, and but also, hey, that's how I like to work. I want shit to look good too. Mm. And I wanted this to be like, you know, because I had this awareness that we were gonna have like, you know, more access to dollies, more access to, to sort of doing these like cinematic moves. I was like, that's something I'm dying to explore mm. where it's just like, Hey, if you don't have the lighting to light 50 feet away, like you might love this wide shot, but it might not be able, you might not be able to see anything kind of. So it's like, you know, limitations are your friends. Like I still am like obsessed with everything we captured in stag but like this there was just more allowance to like go like to sort of do a little bit more of like this is the dream move this is the dream shot and like kind of get it mm -hmm. um yeah and like so i just felt like a ton more season and also i just felt a ton more confident oh, that's like good. i just felt a ton more like hey like every morning like on both stag and i know exactly how you die like you know we did a shot list meeting but like for stag it's like i was doing all the same stuff i was drawing diagrams i was being like this is how it works this is how it works but i i wasn't smart enough about making it kind of like dummy proof mm -hmm. whereas for this time around i was like okay camera is here like this is the shot this is the shot this is the shot and like, of course I'm open to dialogue and if people are like, hey, it's a better idea this way. Of course I'm willing to do that. But the thing that I feel like is like filmmaking is holistic. Filmmaking is about the team, but it is not necessarily a democracy. Like, I mean, it not to say that one should be a tyrant, but like you do kind of need to lead with confidence and be like, Hey, this is what I'm looking to get. Otherwise it's just like, people will start to, to change mm -hmm. the ideas and mm -hmm. that is all awesome. If it's been sanctioned, but like, and, or, and like, again, like, I think I'm very collaborative. I think I'm really open to hearing like what the director of photography says, what the assistant director says, what the writer says, of course, but you know, like, they don't come in with the plan. Mm -hmm. I come in with the plan and pending them being like, I fucking hate that or it's not going to work. Like that is what we execute. And that's mm -hmm. what they're looking to me to do is to come in with the plan. So like, 
you know, I guess just the biggest thing was that I led with way more confidence and I was more like, and I think one of the things that, I mean, I'm always like, I'm obsessed with motifs. I'm obsessed with imagery. I'm obsessed with like subconscious things in filmmaking. And like, I felt a lot more confidence in my ability to be like, this is the motif, right? This is what we're like, there's a, in that movie, like there's a lot of like imagery of like person on top of other person, even though a lot of it's violent, but I was really like obsessed with like, Hey, the faces are close together because we're imitating sex, even though this is a violent act because the movie sort of is all about stalking, which is like the marriage of violence and quote unquote, like desire for sexual, like, or some form of reciprocity. Like, and so I was like, Hey, that's something that's just like, that's a really important theme to me. So sort of like, we're always mirroring that. And like, then like, sometimes it's flipped, right? Where there's like a scene with two women at a door, but their faces are again, really close together. But it's like a little bit of more of like a healing scene. So it's like, we switch the angle, but the the language is still the same. And I just got way more confident about that shit. Like, I was just like, <laughs> okay, like I have some good ideas. Like, and like, I've worked with the producer for a long, long time. I totally trusted him. My sister was the scenic designer and the mm. costumer. So like, you know, my good friend was the lead. Like, you know, it was it was sort of a family operation. I'd worked with the director of photography, the assistant director a number of times. Like, it, you know, it wasn't a group of strangers, <laughs> yeah, for lack of a better word. Uh, yeah, but it was awesome. I mean, I loved it. Like, I wish I could be on set every single day because, like, I love doing it. And it, like, I think I'm good at it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I'm so happy to hear it. Yeah, and, and and looking at the IMDb page for it, I saw some familiar faces from Stag. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the community is not far behind. <laughs> it's like, it is like we're all here. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm 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 so happy to hear that. Um, uh, maybe it's too early to say. I mean, because you're still in post production. Do you have anything else on the horizon? Anything else you're working on that you're at least comfortable talking about? If not, oh, cut all this out. Oh, you, know, please. you can ask me anything. Okay. Um, I mean, like the next, like I have a lot of like quote shelf ideas because, mm. like, hey, if somebody wants the movie about the guy who's a fuck boy that can't get it up, we'll green light that. But that's like one of my more like on the back bench ones. The one that I really want to do next is it's not a horror, but it's um it's about a uh a GameStop manager who's a stoner who discovers that she's gonna birth the second coming of Christ. Mm. So it's kind of like a return to like like I feel like the two places I kind of live in are like ensemble comedy and like sort of like woman on the brink of nervous uh breakdown and this is more of the quote ensemble comedy area because it is that it's all about her and sort of her GameStop community and it's like it's also a romantic comedy because she falls in love with the person though with like the messenger essentially who tells mm -hmm. her that you know this is going to happen but it's also like a stoner comedy it's a lot about the alt-right like it's a lot about like you know, I'm from Nashville. My plan is to film it in Nashville. And it's Ooh. like, you know, I mean, in some ways I'm like, hey, it 
it is a religious movie, but for me, I'm like, I don't feel tied to the New Testament in terms of like, hey, for me, this is like, my hope is this is what we might look forward to in terms of our spirituality in America. It's something that's a little more loose, a little more weed friendly, a little more inclusive, mm. a little more like not as strapped into a tradition as it has been. But at the same point, hey, I love I love gamers. I love stoners. I love, and my mother's a minister. So it's mm. like, the, you know, <laughs> that's where we are. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I hope that comes to fruition because that sounds like an absolute that sounds great. blast. Yeah, thank yeah. you, thank you. <laughs> well, geez, I feel like I could talk to you uh, forever uh, about your yeah. films and about what you got coming up. But I, I mean, I guess we should start talking about The Shining, right? Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, why don't you tell us why you know this was the film that you wanted to come on and and talk about? Um, I guess I wanted to talk about The Shining because. Well, number one, Jack Nicholson is my favorite actor. Whether it's wrong or it's right, Jack Nicholson is my favorite actor in the universe. Mm. And I don't even love him in The Shining, but I love him in everything. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, hey, that's my boy. I want to talk about him. I want to see him. I want to spread the good news about Jack Nicholson after he's been toasted this many times. Um, and then, I mean, I just think it's a really expansive movie. Like it's a movie that for me, like, of course it's about alcoholism. Of course it's about the white supremacy. Of course it's about spousal abuse. Of course it's about, I mean, potentially molestation. Of course it's about like confinement. Of course it's about racism. Like, I mean, of course, it's about magic. Of course, it's about like things that like can't be understood. It's about ghosts. Um, like it's something that I just felt like, hey, there's a lot of opportunities to kind of like talk about, I guess, like just in terms of like, hey, we could talk about this. We could talk about this. We could talk about this. And all of them, as is true with any genius movie, are like, in my mind, applicable. Mm. Um and also, I mean, it's just like, I mean, I love The Shining. Like, uh, I was saying to you before we came on, like, I just saw it at Nighthawk. My sister got it, got me tickets for the midnight showing for my birthday. And we went there and I was like, I couldn't believe how crowded it was at like, you know, midnight on kind of like a snowy day in Williamsburg. But it's just like, everybody is still so gung-ho on this movie. Mm. And like, I mean, I'm also like, I mean, I'm really fascinated by the performance quality in it, even though it's like, I understand that of course, like a ton of like nefarious and bad things went into that filmmaking, but I'm also like a lot of those, I feel like Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall's performance, like those are the templates for horror performance in a lot of ways over the past 40 years. Like I do think people are looking to them to be like what do we do how about that <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um uh, but yeah um yeah i guess that would be what i would say okay well i mean going off of that i mean you talked about all these different things that the, the the film is about is there any particular area you want to focus on or any other avenue you want to kind of start with to get us into the movie um i guess like i mean the thing that 
my sister brought this up after we watched it the last time, but I definitely think like, I mean, a theme that I'm always interested in, I think is a common theme in movies, duh, and is a common theme in horror movies, but is the idea of like doubling, like the obviously like the idea of the twins is like, okay, they're doubles, obviously. But then like my sister brought this up of being like, there's a ton of imagery where it's like, sort of husband wife imagery but like the sun is there like when the sun is like sitting on um on uh jack's lap and such and like there's a lot of or even like you know like there's a it's always like the wife and the son and never like you know it's it's very rare that you see sort of like you know the two the two of them together and like sort of the idea and also like i mean yeah, I mean, the doubling in terms of, like, obviously, like, the butler who was the role that Jack Nicholson was. There's just, like, I mean, yeah, I guess that would be, like, my jumping off point would be, like, the use of doubling in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, awesome. I mean, that's yeah. making me think right away between, like, uh, Danny and Scatman, too, like, the doubling of their the ability, like, finding the other person who has the the shining, you know, that, that he can tap into. Obviously, they're very different characters, but he's finding someone who's similar to him in that regard Mm -hmm. uh, in that same way. Um, Nick, you know a lot more about The Shining than I do. So I'm going to let you step in here and, uh, and discuss the doubling. Um, Yeah, this was, I just want to say this was really daunting when, when you picked The Shining because uh, listeners probably know how obsessed I am with this film, Um, but we've never actually talked about it um certainly not at length um and there's way too much that i could talk about to fit in a single episode um you know i mean there's way too i could talk about doubling for the entire episode easily and i don't yeah. i don't, don't want to like talk over anyone but um yeah there's um first of all i think everything you just said about why you chose the shining is um i mean i agree with all of it i think that's all really fascinating i think it's all as you said, I think there's no, well, let, let me step back and say, I think The Shining is probably the most discussed, most written about horror film. Oh my God. Like if you just like <laughs> measure it, like if you actually measure it, like quantifiable, like text written about The Shining, I think it's like not even, there's no contest. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like tons Psycho of that maybe. stuff yeah. is, yeah, well, yeah, maybe say so, right. But well, so I think that's the other difference is that I think there's certainly a ton of scholarly stuff written about like Psycho and other horror movies. And there is about The Shining too. Tons <laughs> of really good material. The Shining also invites a bunch of loony people to write tons of conspiracy things. And here's the thing about The Shining and those conspiracies. Um, there are There is documentation. Um, Brantley knows that I've spoken to Lee Unkrich, who's a huge Shining fan. He directed Toy Story 3 and Coco. Um, he's like the world's primary like biggest shining fan he just released the definitive book on the subject um so oh my he, god <laughs> yeah he's it's awesome i mean he he knows everything there is to know he's spoken to everyone there is to speak to um he did 10 years of research on this book that just came out so he has the receipts to say definitively like as far as anyone knows and kubrick was like a really private person this yeah. is what we know he was intending to do or this is something that no one knows he kept this to himself and even with that information now kind of more public because that book just came out what you said and what i totally agree with is that anyone could read anything into this movie and i would never discount it 
Yeah. And that's the intention, I think. I think that's 100% what Kubrick's intention was, was to was to make a maze of a film. I mean, the mm-hmm. maze in the movie is like a totally visual metaphor for how you get lost in the. I mean, I've been lost in that movie for 25 years now, and I just feel like I get deeper and deeper into it. So, yeah. No, totally. Um, yeah. And so, sorry, that was like my preface to the whole thing. But in terms of doubling, I think this is actually, I'm glad you brought this up first because um, of the things that Kubrick has said and uh, his co-screenwriter, Diane Johnson, has spoken about, um, what like the one theory that people have had that is 100% provable is that they were thinking a lot about Freud and Freud's essay, The Uncanny, mm-hmm. um, which I recently just read and took some notes on um, prior to talking to Lee. And um, Freud's definition of the uncanny is like pretty broad, but what it comes down to a lot is the familiar yet unfamiliar at the same time. Doubles, um, twins, mirrors, um, the recurrence of the same thing, the recurrence of the same number. Um, And if we're talking about doubles in The Shining, they, as you pointed out, they're everywhere. The twins are the most obvious one. Yeah, of course. Of course. What's less obvious is um, every time someone sees an apparition in the movie, they're looking into a mirror. Oh, really? Um, yes. So uh, if you if you really like block it out, with one exception, which is not really even an exception, when Jack is in the the dry storage and he speaks to Grady through the door, he doesn't actually yeah. see Grady through the door though, which is the key. But every time someone sees a ghost, they are staring in a mirror. Um, and there's mirrors everywhere. Um, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. There's mirrors within shots. There's mirrors, like, if you look at the filmmaking in terms of, like, a lot of shots, and this is something you would never see anymore, um, you'll start wide. The shot will zoom in and zoom back out by the end of the shot, which is, like, un- ridiculous. I mean, people would frown on that today, but that's like it's a mirror within the shot. Um mm-hmm. There's the themes of reincarnation, but one thing I just wanted to say, because I think this is really, really, really interesting. Um, this is a quote from The Uncanny that I wrote down because I think it's worth mentioning here, and, and you kind of led right into it. Uh, Freud writes, um, finally, there's the constant recurrence of the same thing, the repetition of some facial features, the same characters, the same destinies, the same misdeeds, even the same names through successive generations. That quote yeah. sums up The Shining 100%. Completely. I mean, because it's such a film about like the sins of quote unquote our fathers. Obviously, this, I mean, like what's not said is like the sins of our mothers too. But like that's <laughs> what people quote commonly say is like the sins of the father or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, that's exactly. And it's, I mean, because it's historic, I mean, or like the final gag at the end, right? Of course, like he's been here the whole time, right? right. It's like, have we been living, you know, this destiny like forever and like i mean it i mean it's like incredible that's such an awesome quote (laughs) isn't that great yeah Um, (laughs) it's so great and like yeah there's there's something about the shining too it's like the very first time i saw it i was probably 12 13 i can't remember but um i mean i loved it right away like on a surface level but then it was like haunting me that night and ever since and the, I couldn't really put my finger on why. And I th- I still think I can't exactly put my finger on why, but a lot of the subconscious stuff that he was obviously now I know he was playing with, like those Freudian concepts of things are really subconscious things that you can pick up on in your periphery 
while you're viewing it, but like it, they don't become explicit until like further viewings. And so there's things, there's like doubles right there that fact that, um, one example that I didn't even notice until like much, much later in my viewing of The Shining is there's two Grady's. There's um, they tell the story about Charles Grady and Grady the butler in the bathroom introduces himself as Delbert Grady. Mm. Why are there two names? Again, let's point to the Freud quote about the same characters, the same names, reliving destinies. Why is Jack in that picture at the end? Um, there's all of these things um, just sprinkled throughout. And uh, yeah, um, it's just. Uh, I think uh, in terms of uh, here's what I'll say is that I, I've I've my my take on The Shining has evolved a lot over the years. And as I've read more and I've I've, you know, I've taken to certain theories and then I've taken other ones. And, you know, there are people who swear like The Shining is about this one thing and here's all their evidence to prove it. Of course, of course, of course, of course. Right. It's just course. this thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the Shining is, you know, an analogy for the. <laughs> European settlers genocide of the Native Certainly, Americans of and course. nothing else. <laughs> um, uh, or there's a numeral numerological readings, the crazy people who will point to time codes in the movie, not realizing that there's like two cuts of the film already, one in Europe and one in the US. So that doesn't oh it already God. discounts. But it's all valid. And I think after reading all of that stuff, you take little pieces from all of those things and then you form your own opinion. And the opinion that I think I'm, I've arrived on as of today is that he was not trying to say any one thing and it's not an analogy for any one thing, but it was an experiment in horror filmmaking and the unconscious. What really scares people not explicitly on screen? There's no monster necessarily that, you know, what really gets under your skin. Um, and that's what it comes down to for me. I mean, it's things that people really um, are afraid of. There's the Freudian psychoanalytic theories about this. Well, you mentioned molestation. Um, these are the things that are like, themes underneath the surface of this movie that really stick with you whether you realize it or not and i think that's ultimately i think that was his goal with this film totally i mean like i like i have two points on that like it's like the like the like the characters who were seen at the very end of the movie where it's like it looks like it's like oral sex right and it's like you know they kind of like pop up and it's one of those things where it's like why is that so disturbing right. it's just a mask Alex you know but there's something that it's like I mean and that is like what you said like uncanny valley or like I assume like Freud is like the uncanny valley term is like taken from this yeah idea. 100% yeah where it's like there's something where it's like it is quote human they look like they have kind of human forms I assume of course they're human actors duh <laughs> you know and they're wearing masks but it's like there's something that's so like disturbing about it and the fact that the mother sees it Mm -hmm. But it's like, again, it's something that hasn't really been addressed through the whole movie. It hasn't really been brought up, but sort of in this moment when everything's falling apart, like she has almost this, like, whether the ha the house, whatever, the hotel, whether the hotel sent it to her or not, she's having sort of this, like, clairvoyant state where all of a sudden she, like, sees some sexual indiscretion. And, mm -hmm. like, it feels, like, I don't know, it's just, like, that's something that, like, it's not said at all but i'm like hey you know for me as like a person who would desire to be a mom that would be like one of my greatest fears in the world would be having missed something and having it sort of in this moment where everything's like 
I mean, obviously there's a lot at stake. Her husband's like, you know, trying to, you know, really, really off them all, right? You know, right. things are going well. But like in that moment, having kind of like, and you know, this is in a ton of stuff, like, but like a streak of revelation where it's just like all of a sudden I sort of see this. Um, you know, that's the part of the movie that scares me the most. And it's like nothing happens, right? Like nothing is that scary. Um but then like what I was also going to say is like the first time I watched this movie, because I was actually, I was a late viewer. The first time I watched this was during COVID. Again, my sister was like, let's put on The Shining. It's always Marlo. But, um, and we were watching it and we were watching the first scene, you know, where he's kind of taking the job interview and he's being like, well, that'll be fine. And like, I was kind of laughing because I was just like, I was like, Marlo, is this supposed to be scary? Or like, she was like, I just think it's deeply ironic. <laughs> but it's like, even like I don't know like it's such an interesting mixture in terms of like the playing and the acting where it's like clearly Jack Nicholson is portraying somebody who is like you know it's all fine but it's so clear that it's like an obvious mask for something being wrong internally almost right from the jump mm -hmm. like you just summed up everything that Stephen King hates about the movie. Yeah, I mean, I know. I know, I know. No, literally, you did. I mean, I, you hit the nail on the head. That's what he says. He he hates it because the book for him was about his struggle with alcoholism. And like, yeah. he he wants to root for these characters in the book. They're a lot warmer. He's like, Jack Nicholson, you cast him. And even before they made the movie, you know, he's going to be crazy from the, <laughs> you know. Totally. And I do, like, the thing is, I do, like, I do dig that. And I do, like, obviously Stephen King wrote it. He can say whatever he would like <laughs> to do on the subject because he owns the content. But, like, and I dig it. And I, I do... As a director, I, I understand that. But at the same point, there is something kind of badass to me that like, you know, kind of right from the jump that this is gonna go. Like, I just feel like watching that scene, it's like almost so clear in the way that like at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, they're like, and they're gonna die, right? <laughs> Where like, you're like, okay, so that has been a trope for, multiple truly since the beginning of the Greeks of being like this is how it ends the end and like there is something that even though I do dig it and like I could see a world where like maybe that performance was slightly more held back or whatever but I do think there is something satisfying as a viewer about being like I knew exactly what was gonna kind of go down and then watching the execution of that right um so i guess i'm of two heads about it like this is the only one we could look at right like they haven't <laughs> done it yet with another actor who like played it you know played it like close to the chest or whatever but i i, I have to say like i can't i don't even mind that now even though i do of course hear the criticism and, oh yeah yeah <laughs> i'm totally i like i'm sympathetic to stephen king but i think that he's too close to the material of course to judge the movie on its own merits like that's in my mind Steve, stanley kubrick was not in any way trying to do a straight adaptation of the novel and stephen no. king wound up doing that anyway with the miniseries later on mm -hmm. um yeah the thing with the novel um is that 
and I love the novel. I really, I do. I saw the movie first, but I, re- I read the novel. It's one of my favorites. I've read it a bunch of times, and um, and I like the miniseries too. But the reason I love the movie and why I feel like it's just a completely different entity, um, the novel is so explicitly supernatural, and that's where the fear comes from. And I feel like, again, in his this this whole movie is like stanley and stanley kubrick the fact that he even did a horror movie was a shock to everyone yeah um and he kind of felt like they were beneath everyone and you know movies the books horror novels were beneath everyone and um i so i think to your point about jack nicholson kind of being crazy from the word go um i think that's another critique of the whole horror genre i think what he's saying immediately is if you're paying attention um yeah he's crazy you know what's going to happen that's not where the horror from this movie stems from. You have to dig deeper. Well, and also, like, I mean, it, to Kubrick and Jack Nicholson's defense, right? You know, like, if it is a proxy for alcoholism, right? You know, in some ways, it is very hard to believe somebody who has recovered. Mm. Even, it's like, or like, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anybody, but like, you know, if you were the wife and child of someone who has beaten their kids, who has found marks on them, right, it is already hard to believe that the show will work out. Mm-hmm. And like, in a way, by the way that Jack Nicholson is portraying it, He's not even play or, or how Kubrick directed it. This I don't I don't know where the difference is there, but like, there's no hiding that like the desire is still in him, and mm. that's like the thing that is like, I don't know. I mean, like I, I teach acting at Rutgers, right? And like all my kids are obsessed with Euphoria, which is obviously a show about you know addiction, and like. You know, and I'm always talking about like being like, hey, but the slant of people in my mind, and again, this is just me, but of people who are addicted is being like, but hey, the universe is brighter in this way and you all just can't see it. Like, and there is something really clear in my mind with Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack (laughs) that, you know, like, I mean, he is singularly motivated, even though the work is trash. Obviously he's been making no novel, but like, I don't know, like this, this belief that it sort of is better on the other side, despite the fact that the constraints are those which say, no, it is better to be a good parent. No, it is better to be a good father. No, it is better. And of course these things are better, but I do think I could, I mean, like, and I apologize. I haven't read the novel. I should, I will after the podcast. No, but no, like, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure you were waiting to rebuke me for that. But Not like, at all. <laughs> like, um, you know, in terms of the supernatural, like I completely like, although I haven't read it, so I got to read it, but it's like, I completely understand that like the thing that is so amazing about this movie is like the supernatural is so present but it is not all encompassing. It is all in my mind about human error, human fertility, human imagination, like, and what human beings can create, which is like the, which is at least in the world I have lived in the most realistic truth of the supernatural of where like, you know, of course these things exist. I I, I believe for better or for worse, but what you see it more as is like, who's wielding, who's wielding God, who's wielding the belief in ghost 
And what do those things manifest from, from humanity kind of? I think the belief in ghosts speaks to what you were saying about things being brighter on the other side too. I mean, I think Stanley Kubrick found something kind of almost warm about ghosts because yeah. believing in ghosts means you believe in life after death. You believe that there is something after, you know? So in some ways it's kind of an affirming thing to believe in the supernatural. Um, totally. And the movie is, I mean, it is ironic at the end seeing him there, but it is a cheerful ending. Dare I say it? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, like in theory, if he has been there forever, he might come back again. You know, there is some like, like I would say that, I don't know, I would dare to say that I don't, I, I couldn't argue this in a court of law, but I might say this is a comedy at the end of the day. Like, cause it does, like if the last image is to be taken seriously, the idea is like the cycle might repeat, which is a series of abuse, but is also a comedic trope where it's like, oh, we're always back to square one. Mm. You know, we're always back to one um but yeah <laughs> no that's a that's an interesting way to look at it yeah as a comedy yeah you should argue that in the court of law i would i would, all right, hear good. That. I'll, let, let's I would hear it in court justices here and yeah. we'll take this all out again <laughs> no that's a whole discussion to to be had um yeah uh well brantley i want sorry i just want to like open oh. it up to you I've been having such a good time listening to you talk because <laughs> you two, I feel like know a lot more about it. I mean, you know, I'm so happy that you shared the the quote and, and that so much of it was the thinking at least of that we know of Kubrick's was coming from Freud's essay, the uncanny, because all of these things that we're talking about, I'm thinking about how they are sort of these like uncanny aspects, right? Like, an abusive relationship, whether that's, you know, physical, whether that's like mental and emotional, whatever it is, it can sort of have this facade and mask of a regular relationship. Like when he's interviewing for the job, oh yeah, that'll be fun. You know, like you're, you're saying like he's imitating and, and acting as if someone who's trying to get that job would, but like you sort of, it has this uncanny nature to it because it's not real, right? He's putting exactly. it on, you know? Right. And you talk about the revelation when she sees the the, the oral sex at the end, right? That the, it's like the the mask of the um, abusive relationship has sort of slipped and she's sort of seeing what's really going on all of a sudden. Because, you know, in reality, sometimes a lot of abusive relationships start really slow. And it's like over time, the partner has gotten so much more control that you've gotten that the, the, the abused partner has gotten so used to what that relationship is like, that it takes something very jarring for them to really suddenly see for the for the mask to slip to see what is really going on. And so those are kind of the two things I was thinking about as you two were talking that these things are thing the relationship and then the you know how he's portraying himself are these things that seem normal but they're imitations that you know just don't quite look right mm -hmm. and I, one of the things i love so much about this movie is just that like like i said every single theory i think is completely valid i think mm -hmm. there there's a theory that you know well in the reality even though you don't see it we, we know jack has hurt danny in the past physically he claims it was an accident wendy claims it's an accident it may well have been but there's a theory that he's also sexually abused danny mm -hmm. um yeah. and there's like some metaphor for that in the movie and whether there is or not or that was his intent it doesn't matter there are plenty of clues to point to that being 
the case. Um, you know, and the way Wendy acts the whole time. I know a lot of people criticized her performance, which I think is ridiculous, but it's a whole other discussion. Um, but like, you know, she could well be a mother who is aware of that sexual abuse and has kind of had to swallow that awareness and continue as if everything was fine. Like that conversation with the doctor in the opening of the movie, it's not really like she's trying to convince the doctor of anything. It's like, she's trying to convince the doctor or to convince herself that this whole thing was an accident with Danny. And mm -hmm. there's like weird clues that you would never have seen. And, and I, you know, again, this is something that if you had seen the movie in 1980, you would never have noticed it wasn't until video that people probably picked up on this. And so I, I can't point to it and say, well, this is evidence that, you know, that is what this theory is about. But when you first see Jack in the hotel after he's gotten the job and the family has gone there and he's waiting for Ullman, Ullman comes up and Jack's, you know, sitting on a chair waiting. He's reading a magazine. What magazine is he reading? Playgirl. Why is that in a hotel? That's inexplicable that there's an issue of Playgirl in the hotel. It's a 1978 or 79 issue of Playgirl. And if you look at that issue, and I have because I'm a Shining fanatic, I bought it. Um, but there's a cover story on why do parents abuse their children? Wow. So it's like, was that deliberate? Did he put that there? Maybe not. Probably not. But, you know, it's there. It's weird that Jack is reading it. And like it is a sign that maybe Kubrick was thinking about that kind of thing as he was making the movie. It wasn't necessarily like, I want this to be a clue. Let's put it in here so that the audience is going to pick up on it and they'll see that. And they'll be like, this is what it's, it's not that at all, but it is kind of like almost a clue to maybe his filmmaking process. But even the idea, right. I mean, cause uh, you know, like, Hey, again, I can't argue like the sexual molestation in a court of law, but even the, or, but, but I can definitely say like, Hey, my big feeling is like the father abused the child and even the idea of shining, right? Like, you know, I've recently read as we all have the body keeps score, but like, you know, these kids who are like so hurt, they disembody, right? Mm -hmm. Or like when they're kids, they like lose themselves. They're like, I saw myself from a different angle. I saw myself floating above myself. That wasn't me. It's another person, you know? And even this idea of kind of like leaving yourself is like and even though the shining is like it's obviously it's different than that but that is like in some ways to me like it feels like a metaphor for like coping is a uh, coping mechanism and even like Halloran being like oh you do it too but it's also like so many people at least right. in this day and age like there wasn't as much awareness about like number one what abuse was and two like sort of like quote learning from our like from from our past right which is more like in vogue now like there is more like desire for accountability and like for and for looking at the things which like have caused trauma which was just like not at all in vogue at the time mm -hmm. but it's like kind of like i don't know so it's just i don't know for me i'm like if in a way like even the way danny is like feels like of course like of course this kid must be hurt you know, who like this feels like a coping mechanism, even in the acting. Yeah, this is so great that you I, lo I love this because you keep bringing up things that I think are like uh, they bring us right back to the visual metaphors I was hoping to talk about anyway. Oh, good. Um, so um, <laughs> what you're saying about the coping mechanism, I mean, part of the theory that he was sexually abused is, in fact, that well, part of, you know, again, everyone has their own theories. They make their own thing. But a part of one of those theories about Danny being sexually abused is that. What really happens in room 237 is that Danny wanders in and 
Jack abuses him sexually, which mm-hmm. is why the ghost manifests as this naked woman. It's a sexual thing. This mm-hmm. is Danny's vision about coping with it because it's too horrible to think that it's his father who did it. Mm-hmm. And Jack, meanwhile, is coping with it in a different way. When he goes into room 237, he sees this beautiful naked woman. Mm-hmm. It's not until he looks in the mirror that she becomes a rotting corpse. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff like this all over the place, and it's awesome. Like, you could totally, again, there's nothing not valid about it. Like, I can yeah. totally see that theory and be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's, you know, they're both coping with this horrible thing in a different way. Totally. And just like, yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, for me, I'm just like, hey, that is the thing that, that I believe happened in the movie. Like, and also, I like, I do come back to this, like, the long scene where he's sitting on the father's lap, which is like, you know what i don't it just if it, it, it's just something that piques my attention as being like okay if the camera was on this image for that long they're desiring the audience to think about this image um and so like for me i'm and that's like any and even though it's like again that's a totally normal thing kids sit on their parents laps all the time but movies aren't about normal moments movies are about being like okay so we're like (laughs) the door shuts and the scene's over and that wasn't an important shot so it lasted one second right whereas like just the amount of like duration on a shot i'm like okay they're wanting me to think about this longer they're wanting me to like you know invest into this a little more but and that scene if you look closely is again a scene where you pick up on things that maybe you wouldn't on a first viewing. Danny is in fact not looking at Jack. He's looking into the mirror that's mm-hmm. situating there. He's like, it's like he's watching the mirror to make sure. And to mirror that, when Jack then speaks to Grady in the red bathroom, watch their eye lines. He's looking into the mirror. Mm-hmm. They're not looking at each other. And the wide angle, you can see that they're actually offset. Jack's right foot is between Grady's two feet. And he's staring into the mirror. And Grady is framed mm-hmm. that way too. Um, where you see his close-up and it's just the mirror and his face and that's it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think also totally unrelated, but when you were talking about how long that scene is and how crucial it is, one of the things that I'm so fascinated by in this movie is um, how these scenes are cut together. If you look at a scene like Danny talking to Halloran in the kitchen, mm-hmm. that's like a four minute scene uninterrupted. You would never mm-hmm. see that again. It would be intercut with action. Uh, another character doing something else. Like it's insane that he had the balls to be like, no, we're just going to sit here for four minutes and I don't want to cut anything. Just have them talk to each other. People today would be like, that's boring as shit. You can't do that. Cut to something totally. else. Um, it's, it's pretty cool to see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think the movie is like amazing. Like, I would never say anything but that, like, I love The Shining. And I do, and I, and I, and I love Nicholson, despite yeah. Stephen King's <laughs> hatred. <laughs> I <know>. Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I love Shelley Duvall, despite uh, Kubrick's distaste. I love Shelley Duvall. She's uh, incredible in that yeah, movie. Yeah, I think she's she... fucking awesome. It's like, it's, it's a bummer to me that, like, she... I mean, of course, it's a bummer that that happened because I think she's really incredible. And I'm also like, I don't I don't know why on earth it went down that way that she was like traumatized by it when in my mind, the performance is really good. I think it's great. Obviously, it's based on 
Kubrick's failings, but like it's yeah, just sucks. So I've always thought that um well, yeah, so she won a golden raspberry that year for worst actress and they later no rescinded it. Way. Yeah, she did. But they later for rescinded that? it. Yeah. Um, and then years later, like 20 years later, they res- it was nominated for a lot of gold. I think it was nominated for worst picture, worst director. Um, but she won. And then they rescinded it like 20 years later when all this stuff came out about like a Kubrick allegedly abusing her. Um, but what's interesting is now with Lee's book, again, he has there are a lot of misconceptions about The Shining. And he has now publicly been saying the f- yes there was some contention on set but the fact that she was like emotionally abused by kubrick to get a performance out of her was is as far as anyone else knows including shelly herself because he spoke to her a fabrication she apparently has nothing but good things to say about him today yeah, um and she thinks that misconception comes from if you watch the vivian kubrick documentary making of the shining which is include there are I think two cases where you see Stanley Kubrick yelling at Shelley Duvall. Um, mm-hmm. It's a half hour documentary. I think it's actually like 23 minutes. So out of those 23 minutes, you see two cases where he yelled at her. Both of those instances came towards the end of shooting. And this was like a nine or 10 or 11 month shoot. Everyone was tired. Everyone was at each other's hair. Um, and according to uh, Lee, at least Kubrick was like very, very aware of his public image. And I think he liked Apparently he liked that idea that he was like this uncompromising perfectionist. And so he had final cut on that documentary, mm-hmm. even though it was his daughter's documentary. So Lee's theory is that he encouraged her to put those two parts in because it kind of fed that. The rumor mill. That room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's not false that, you know, these things happened to Shelley, but it's also greatly exaggerated. And the fact that she was like, mentally scarred from this for years and years and years is apparently at least according to her and everyone else on the crew a total fabrication and it's it's interesting because so many of these theories about the shining just circulate on the internet in this echo chamber and then they become fact like how many takes certain shots were um like i think guinness world records has listed you know a scene in the shining as being a certain number of shots and uh the book proves wrong he's like i have the logs from the shoot like none of that is accurate (laughs) wow i mean no i mean that makes a ton of sense and also like i mean i like here's the deal i just don't know enough about like the lore the history to even like be like i know anything about like what actually happened there but what i will say having directed two horror movies the cast and the set do take on the properties of the film. Like whether, not to say that you become a serial killer, not to say that you become a stalker, not to say that like magic happens, but like it, I feel like at least, I mean, cause both of the two horror movies I've shot have been on location and have been on location with the cast, and I have been the director. Um, And they say art imitates life, but I would say that's completely fucking true, where you're like, people actually begin to act as their characters. They begin to, like, you know, you do begin to become the movie. And maybe that's not the case if you, like, 
you know, it's like, maybe if there's like, you know, I don't know, perhaps in my professional future, I'll be like, oh, no, 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 that's not the case at all. But at least from what I've seen right now, you do begin to take on the properties of the film. And if the film is a horror, you still adapt those. And I don't think it's like conscious, but I think everyone on set, because in general, people want to make a good movie. In general, people are not, in my mind, just there for the paycheck, even in the big leagues. I really don't think that, like, people want to make a fucking shit movie. And, like, there sort of is, in a way, like, everybody sort of drinks a bit of the Kool-Aid, where you're like, hey, this is, if for, you know, for, for better or for worse, kind of. So it does make sense to me, and it does make sense to me that people will play into tropes when like or it's 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 almost i guess it's almost hard to avoid doing that when you right. are sort of in a confined space and you're working on a genre piece or any piece kind of so yeah that makes that that i, I dig it <laughs> well bringing this back to like um your experience as a director particular particularly sorry on two horror projects i am curious i i want to ask you um in terms of The Shining, you've kind of started this podcast by talking about your experience making two horror films and how, um, you know, for you in a lot of ways, it sounded like this, this was like a crash course in horror. Like, yeah, I was, I'm going to make this movie. I'm going to, I'm going to read up about, I'm going to like watch a bunch of movies. It's like, this is, and you've said like how much you learned about horror filmmaking just by doing it, by being at the festivals in that community. Um, so as someone who has recently had that experience, I'm curious what your thoughts are just on the, the Shining and Kubrick in general, because one of the criticisms that he has faced over and over and over over the years was that he simply did not understand horror and it was not his genre to be working in. Um, and that I mean, The Shining proves that. I mean, I think that's total fucking bullshit. Like, I mean, I, I mean, for me, like, I'm like, hey, both of my horror movies draw directly from The Shining. Like, in Stag, there's like a sequence at the very beginning. And this is pretty like, copy paste almost although i wouldn't say that at a talk back but like you know <laughs> it's pretty copy paste of like the intro to the shining like where they're driving up the mountain and like we do sort of a version obviously it's not the same like you know the beginning of the shining where it's like flying right over the lake is like you know we didn't get that shot but it's right. like a similar drone sequence of like which for me is like I was like copy paste. Like I was like, okay, drone person, like look at the intro of the shining. Let's do that. I Where, saw that in the trailer and immediately it was like shining. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's, <laughs> yeah. And that's like, you know, again, I was a little more beginner. I was a little more like, you know, I was, you know, it's like odd, like it's like, I bet a ton of people were like, okay, she got that from the shining. Oh, but, I, I didn't like, mean it like that, but yeah. No, 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 no. I don't mean no, 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 no. I that's just what I feel like. But like I feel like uh you know, like, so I feel like that was like total copy paste on like my part. And then, but of course the movie I just directed is about a motel and The Shining exactly. is about a hotel, right? So a ton of the stuff I was thinking about, like, you know, we didn't have access to like the steady cam equipment, which like Kubrick had and like being able to like, sort of like run a hotel. Cause ours was like, kind of like people are still there. And like <laughs> a ton of that was like it totally influenced by the shining. 
And I think that's, it's just like, I don't even know how, how people could say that. Like, I'm like, isn't that one of the greatest movies of all time? Isn't it one of the greatest horror movies of all time? Like, I don't, yeah, I'm, I am I don't know. I, I completely disagree with that. I think it's like, I think it's an incredible movie. I think it is like sort of where I feel like I spring from in terms of like, hey, I'm not saying that like, it is the only movie that has ever been created but I think it's an absolute banger. And I think like, and I'm also just like, for me, the bravery in the performances, kind of despite whether you love it or you hate it, like who acts like that? Who goes that hard anymore? Like, it's just like, I feel like so many times I'm watching people on like TV, I'm just like, nobody's even fucking trying. And like, I'm like, hey, Jack Nicholson, whether it's too much or not, he is trying. He is there. He is selling. He is like going. Same thing with Shelley Duvall. Same thing with Doc. Like, you know, I just feel like they're all like, I don't know. I'm really like, even though it's like, it's ridiculous to say I'm proud of them. I'm so (laughs) proud of them for like doing it. And for like showing people what a real ass fucking performance is when like, I don't know, my big beef is being like, everybody's just mumbling now. Nobody's doing facial expressions. Everybody's just, that's my bone to pick (laughs) modern cinema, right? Which is why I'm trying to be a director. But like, you know, I mean, for me, I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like, I, I can't imagine saying this movie was a flop in any way. Like, I'm just like, it's everything <laughs> for me. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's such a, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to keep you longer than you can be here either. And that was a great place to end it. But I, I think just to, just to add one more thing to the performance thing, because I think that's what people really talk about. And I think that was a lot of, I mean, the movie, didn't get panned, but it was not well received when it first came out, and people have warmed to it. Roger Ebert famously didn't like it, and then wound up saying <laughs> it. Well, then he, he like later on he basically put it in his list of favorite movies of all time. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it's one of those films. But I think yeah, people kind of focus in on the performance, and for me, maybe the best scene in that whole film, um, certainly the most fun to watch, is when Wendy finds the manuscript. And they argue with each other all the way through the Colorado lounge and up the stairs. And it culminates with him. That scene is both of them at their most animated. I mean, Wendy is just like mumbling and crying hysterically. Jack is just flailing his arms about and saying, and like, yeah, they're like over the top, but it fits that scene so well because the majesty of that scene, if you really just sit and look at it, like on a technical level, the blocking, the way that they, kind of weave through the Colorado lounge where certain lines are said, how they get to the stairs. It's like one of the most beautiful sequences in history. Um, and it's so like grand and gorgeous that like I, the performances that just like fit that space. They're in this huge space and they're filling it. It's incredible. Um, and it is like, I honestly, like, I mean, I love that scene. I assigned it to one of my students at Rutgers university this year. I was like, all right, you're going to do Jack. 
and like <laughs> it's like an on-camera acting class so it's like they don't have props it's just like them against like a blue screen like you know trying to quote unquote book but they aren't booking because they're just showing it to like their teacher who's me and i'm like good job <laughs> you know <laughs> um but and like obviously the student is like you know 20 right so not quite in that castable market quite yet for man with son but I was like like the biggest thing is I was like you know that like even coaching it right and it's like you don't have the lounge you don't have anything but I was like this scene is almost like an opera like the romance is like like or like the degree of animation is almost to the degree of a proposal but it's like flipped you know, where it's like, but then he's like, oh, I'm going to like bash your fucking brains out, you know, but, <laughs> right. it's, like, but it's like in that thing of like, oh, I'm going to marry you. Like, <laughs> it's like, it is like that same kind of like, I don't know, like super, super heightened place. And that's like, I mean, it thrills me about it. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's what's like thrilling to me about the movie, about like, the scene I mean I'm a huge fan of like I'm also a huge fan of over-the-top performances like you know I think Carrie's really over the top in some ways too but I'm like man what a banger and if it had been smaller would it have been as iconic I just have to wonder that because I'm like people mumbling they do get forgotten (laughs) like oh yeah (laughs) like (laughs) I think it's kind of this uh Sorry again, I don't want to keep you, but I, I I do want to like kind of sum up my feeling on on yeah. what's so interesting about The Shining and why I feel like it was great that you picked it for this podcast. Um, is because in a lot of ways, if you were to watch one movie to kind of train yourself on horror filmmaking, The Shining is the last one you should watch because <laughs> it's been criticized as it is the anti horror movie. It does mm-hmm. not take place in claustrophobic environments. It's this like cavernous hotel. It takes place entirely in brightly lit rooms. Um, they 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 forecast every scare. Like they zoom in on Danny's face before you see the twins. Like no, there's nothing no. surprising. It's everything that you shouldn't do in making a traditional horror film. Kubrick did. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it was criticized so much. But it's so interesting for this podcast in particular that you picked it to like kind of like do a deep dive on because um yeah, especially as like a, a person who's recently made two horror films. It's like, it's so funny just when people ask me about that movie or talk about it, the criticism you hear the most is like, yeah, it's not scary. Like everything, it's just, what's scary about a wide angle lens in a brightly lit hotel? And it's like, you dig deeper and it's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess just like for me, like, of course there must be some jump scares it might behoove one to have a thrilling soundtrack you know (laughs) like it there are things which horror loves but at the same point i'm like and this is what i feel like about stag because i'm like hey you know these real real horror people you know they will not necessarily find stag super scary right just because like the appetite is so there for like blood gore uh special effects all of which are coming and i know exactly how you die but like (laughs) no it you know um stag it is like less replete with those and like but the thing that like i was just like hey of course this can be a horror movie because i believe that what is being discussed is unsettling 
And even though it is not unsettling to every person in America, it is unsettling to a lot of people who have gone through college who like, or like for me. And like, that's one of the, I mean, it's just like with the shining, I'm like, but the thing is it's so unsettling Mm -hmm. and it's like, how could it not be a horror movie? And also I'm just like, yo, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody who speaks against it. (laughs) I mean, that's the perfect way to wrap this up. I can't add to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this yeah, is we, incredible. This was, this was great. And I mean, we could be sitting here talking The Shining with you all night, but. Well, we, hey, we, thank you all for having me. This was super fun. I had a lot of good fun. So thank This was a blast. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank yeah, you excellent. for yeah. lending us your time and, and insight. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Is there uh is there anywhere you want to let people know how to find you online? Any socials you want to plug um, or anything like that? Yeah, I'm Alexandra. Uh, speeds.com you can always hit me up there for my professional inquiries but i'm also on instagram constantly and i'm at my name is alexandra speeds you can follow me you can dm me i will respond there all the time i'm always on instagram so (laughs) (laughs) excellent well thank you so much for coming on alexandra and best of luck uh with both the distribution for stag and on your next film uh i know exactly how you die we're uh really excited to see where those go yeah, Thank absolutely. You. The song you heard in this episode is You Are a Monster by Monroeville Music Center. It's being used under a CCBY Creative Commons license and was accessed from freemusicarchive.org. If you'd like to hear more of Monroeville Music Center, you can find them on Bandcamp, their Facebook page, YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Discogs, iHeartRadio, and Deezer. And hey, if you want to reach out and communicate with us, please send an email to horrordraftspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at horrordrafts, all one word. We'd love to hear any questions you have for us, suggestions for topics to draft, or ideas for guests, especially if you can put us in touch with them. Thanks everyone, and we hope to hear from you soon.